lonely feeling in VC is probably a good feeling. Um, you got to figure out why it's lonely. Are you the only idiot? Is certainly the question to ask. But if you can find those less exciting to the mainstream areas, um, the business still works. Um, if you're having to compete uh, against everybody else, then then you're essentially in the beauty contest business. That is extremely tiring to me. To me, what's energizing about the business is learning about something new, digging into a new idea, rolling up on sleeves, and like trying to really understand the dynamics in a new business or a business model with an entrepreneur. That's fun. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On this week's episode, I chat with Jeremy Levine, partner over at Bessemer Venture Partners. Now, Bessemer has been around for over a century. The firm was founded by a family that was partnered with Andrew Carnegie back in the day. Currently, the firm deploys about a billion dollars a year into tech investments, And Jeremy has been at this firm for over 21 years, so he has seen a few cycles. Now, he's a hell of an investor. He's made the Forbes Midas list and has invested in a few firms that you've heard of, such as Yelp, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Shopify, and there are others. And his background, he studied computer science at Duke, did a tour through McKinsey in a startup and a private equity firm, all before joining Bessemer 21 years back. If you're interested in how the VC industry works, this is a great conversation for you. We cover how Bessemer operates internally, how to be a good early stage investor, and we talk about the impact of macro trends on the VC landscape. And we cover so much more. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Thunder. Thunder is a platform that is democratizing access to capital. The company believes fundraising should be about who you are and what you've built, not just about who you know. Founders can create a free account and add their company information and then match with relevant investors. Investors can create free profiles and provide their investment criteria, ensuring that they only receive relevant deal flow. By utilizing a double opt-in matching protocol, Thunder avoids the spam, only connecting investors and entrepreneurs that should be introduced. Visit thunder.vc to create your free account while the company is in beta. Jeremy, thanks for being here today, man. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Very cool. So starting off at the top, can you give us an overview of Bessemer? Uh, Sure. So Bessemer, we think of ourselves as a venture capital firm. We've been around for the Royal We 110 years. Uh, We were started by a guy named Henry Phipps, who was part of the Carnegie Steel uh, launch and success. And uh, he set out to invest in other high-risk, high-growth companies back in the early 1900s. And we are essentially a continuation of that over many decades, eventually evolving from manufacturing technologies to information technology. We have offices in the U.S., in Israel, in India, in China, in Europe. And we invest in everything from $25,000 angel-style investments to multi-hundred million dollar growth equity investments. But most of what we do is Series A, Series B, Series C venture capital. And uh, we have a lot of fun doing it. When you say you think of yourself as a venture firm, what's the subtext there? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define a venture firm, I guess. And so I think of a venture firm as doing Series A, Series B, and Series C investments. I don't think of a venture firm as, as writing you know, $100 million checks. I don't think of a venture firm as writing you know, angel checks. I don't think of a venture firm as, as doing software buyouts. And we do all those things. Um, mm. Most of what we do and what we're most well-known for 
are the, the classic venture capital investments, make a significant million, million to $15 million investment to buy 15 to 30% of a promising idea of very early stage company. Um, that's most of what we do, but we do a lot of other stuff too. So when you guys do the other stuff, the non-traditional venture investments, is that the same team or who's doing that? Is that... Uh, yeah, we, so we, 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 we take, like, well, we describe as a crawl, walk, run approach to almost everything we do. And so, um, you know, years ago, we never would have contemplated a $100 million investment. And then one of our partners at one point said, wait a minute, instead of letting some great growth-oriented firm come in and write a $100 million check to one of our best companies, why don't we write the check? And, uh, and we start, and we didn't do that necessarily with $100 million the first time. Maybe the first time it was a $25 million check, and then the next time it was a $50 million check. And so we, we slowly crawl and then walk our way into something new. Um, and so it almost always starts with, in fact, not almost, it always starts with one of our existing partners extending what we've historically done in a slightly new direction. And sometimes that feels like a 90-degree left turn, and sometimes it feels like a three-degree you know, slight redirection from where we're otherwise heading. And if it works and we feel good about it and increase our conviction about it, we'll do it more and more. And eventually we even bring on a whole team of people dedicated to that. But at first it starts with someone on our core team. And that's how we get comfortable and excited about it. We're at Interplay. We're going through that same evolution right now. We're raising our first opportunity fund with the concept that, you know, we're handing, we're handing off some of the deals that we'd like to put some more capital into. But it seems like, you know, we had Ian Sigal on, on the show a long time ago. Um, and Graycroft has built a pretty robust growth fund at this point where they're doubling down and writing bigger checks. It seems like once you kind of whet your appetite for larger checks, a lot of people have trouble going back. The smaller checks become, I don't want to say irrelevant, but less critical, right, to the financial performance of the firm. Have you found that you guys have kind of shifted increasingly towards the larger checks or you've done them as one off, but the, the passion, the heart is still in the early stage venture. Yeah, I think the passion and the heart is still very much early stage venture. I mean, it's where we've made most of our returns and it's where we've gotten involved with most of the best companies over a long period of time. And so and it's also the case that for us, the growth investing, we do have a separate dedicated fund for growth investing. Um, and uh, we, we have had a couple of those now. 90% of the growth equity investments we've made have come into companies that were already in our portfolio from the early stages. And frankly, growth investing is insanely competitive. Prices are insanely yep. high. It's a really tough way to make a living these days, if you ask me. But if you're already an investor in companies because you happen to get in at an early stage, you're not having to compete on, on a true arm's length you know, market basis with every other growth equity investor when those companies are looking for more capital because they already know you, they already trust you. And frankly, you can kind of get in um, and, and even contemplate maybe a slightly smaller financing four months before they would have otherwise hit the market. And that's most of what we've been doing with growth. But you can't do that unless you have a really robust early stage practice that feeds those growth opportunities. And so for us, the, 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 it's always been the tail um, and the dog <laughs> has, has been the venture business um, mm -hmm. and, and letting the, the tail wag the dog just doesn't work. Have... Um uh, there, there's a little bit of strategic wisdom in there potentially for LPs. I don't know if it was intended. The idea that when you're evaluating growth stage investment firms, finding the ones who have existing relationships through an earlier stage vehicle might have an unfair advantage. Has that been borne out anywhere in data? Have you seen any numbers to kind of support? Yeah, I, my guess is not because um, 
if you look in the rear view mirror at what's happened, if you were any kind of growth investor for the last 10 years and didn't do really well, then you're a freaking moron because the market has gone up so dramatically every year in each of the last 10 years up until 2022. And so it, you didn't need to be getting a, a, a better than um, market clearing price as a growth investor to have done really well because the market clearing price in 2013 went up by 20% in 2014, and again in 2015, again in 16. So even if you paid above market prices in 2017, you still did really well because the market right. just kept going up. So I right. think looking at data to understand the importance of this on a, on a look-back basis is, is irrelevant. Um, on a go-forward basis, I think it will be different. Interesting. Okay, now does your firm manage outside capital? I know you guys had kind of like an evergreen thing, if I'm not mistaken, in the beginning. Um, What's the contract? Yeah, so, so our, our, our largest investor is Bessemer Securities Corporation, which you could think of as the family office of uh, the Phipps family. Um, and then we, the folks who work at Bessemer Venture Partners, are also supplying a meaningful amount of the capital that we invest. Um, but now, for about the past 15 years, we've also had other limited partners who represent a range of charitable foundations, universities, pension plans, and so forth. And so we have a what I call a traditional-looking set of LPs that complements the, the original LP, um, Bessemer Securities, and, and our own money. Is the goal to expand the outside LP base over time, or do you guys have a, is there a trajectory here? I mean, we've grown. I, I've been at Bessemer now for 21 years, and um, we invested you know, on the order of $100 million a year when I first came here, and now we're investing something closer to a billion dollars a year, maybe a bit more. And so we've had to expand our capital base in order to support that. But our basic, and you know, when I first joined Bessemer, we had maybe six active investing partners. Today we have 22. And so wow. our, our, our basic premise is, um, well, twofold. One, we have to keep growing or we'll die. Like our, you know, what's also notable is that we have 22 active investing partners and 17 of the 22 grew up at Bessemer Venture Partners. So one thing we've learned to do really well is we've learned to grow partners as opposed to just hire partners. Most firms in our industry hire partners, whereas everyone at our firm, for the most part, starts as an analyst or an associate. Typically, you know, I call them puppies, um, right out of college or right out I'm of sure they graduate love that. school. <laughs> I myself was one. And so <laughs> I'm a product of the system. I'm really proud of the system. I think it works. Um, but not only do we use that system to find our next partners, but I think we also find many of the next partners for other firms in the venture industry. And so to put it in perspective, I, I, I haven't done the math, but I bet you that we've exported more partners to other venture capital firms than every other venture capital firm combined. And like just off the top of my head, you know, wow. Sarah Tablet Benchmark started at Bessemer. Chris Dixon right. and Christina Shannon started at Bessemer. They're at Andreessen Horowitz now. Um, Philippe Oturi, he's at Excel now. He started at Bessemer. Mitchell, Mitchell Green and Brian Nider, they started their own now multi-billion dollar venture firm called Lead Edge. They both started at Bessemer. Larry Chang at Volition, he started at Bessemer. Um, Lisa Wu at Norwich, she started at Bessemer. I could probably go on for 15 minutes and just name all these partners. Anna Khan at CRV, she started at Bessemer. And so one thing Bessemer really knows how to do is develop young people into career venture capitalists. And it's a, it's a fantastic place to grow up. So that's the core of what we do. And as a result, we end up... Um, as we grow more partners, our goal is as long as we find folks who have the work ethic, intelligence, and judgments to be good investors, we want to make sure we have enough capital to support them in making additional investments that supplement or complement what the rest of us do. 
And so if, if we keep finding more people to be partners at a faster rate than others of us retire, we could go from 22 to 32 to 52 partners over time. And some folks have criticized that idea and said, well, wait a minute, like, how are you going to scale a venture firm to 52 partners? And, and my logic is like, we don't have an especially high market share of all the best deals today. We, we do plenty of them and we have great performance and, and we're, we're proud of that. But, um, but it's not like we have 85% of the best deals we do. And so if we can keep adding more partners and getting more of the best deals out there, we're, we're thrilled to do it. And so that's our general mentality. We'll keep adding capital to support the partners we have. But Jeremy, wait a second. How are you going to scale a venture firm by adding more partners? I'm just kidding. That's the question <laughs> you said people are asking you. Hey, but for a real, que- real question with it though, um, there is an operational constraint when you add a lot of partners. Right, and you're 22. You're already way past it. You know, uh, s- small firms when their partners are in a room, they can all put eyes on the same deal. They can all evaluate it. You can have a healthy conversation between two, four, or five people. How do you operate with 22? What's the decision making process for investments? How do you communicate between the partners? Is there silos or sectors or what's the construct that makes us float? Um, so our, our, our firm and our system requires and encourages massive independence and autonomy. So we don't have a person or a pair of people who sit in the corner office and make all the decisions. We've got 22 partners who make decisions independently and autonomously. And then we hold them accountable. And so if over time you make a series of really good decisions, you become a full co-equal partner in our firm. And if you have a series of decisions that you know, with data turn out to be bad decisions, you'll find your way to the exit door um, sooner than later. And so we don't, we don't have to have, because we don't have to have one or two people making all the decisions, we can keep scaling out as long as people continue to exercise good judgment. And of course, when you're a brand new partner, you invest a little bit less capital and have a little bit less freedom um, than once you have a proven track record. But, uh, but that's our system. And so we encourage people to think really independently to get feedback and criticism from their colleagues so that they can make a really good decision, but they're not asking someone else what a good decision is. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting anecdote. So we had a, an associate who joined us a couple of years ago, shortly after the pandemic, and she had come from another investment firm. And, uh, and about 30 or 60 days into her, her uh, time at Bessemer, I did a sort of a half an hour Zoom catch up with her just to ask her, like, hey, how's it going? Like, what are you finding different or interesting about Bessemer? And she said to me the, 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 this thing that just stuck in my head and she said, well, I can't believe how honest the investment memos are at Bessemer. And I was taken aback. I said, honest, like where you mm. used to be, like they lied in the investment memos and you're, you're surprised I was honest. Said, no, it's just that where I used to work, um, really there was a committee. It was a small committee of a few people who actually made the decisions. And so when you made an investment memo, you were asking the committee for permission to invest. And so not surprisingly, the memos were like sales documents. And sure, you'd write what you thought were the downsides and the risks, but you would totally sand them down and gloss over them because if you accentuated the downsides too much, you'd get rejected by the committee. And so you're essentially writing a sales document. Whereas at Bessemer, we really empower individuals to make decisions as partners. And like I said before, we hold them accountable, but as a result, the memos are truly intellectually honest. And they say, here's on balance, I want to make this investment, but here's all the great things about this opportunity. And here's the stuff that scares the crap out of me, um, but I want to do it. And so what do you think? And then they get feedback from the other partners, which can be super critical feedback. Very rarely does the group ever say, no, you can't do that. But quite often 
it'll the group will give enough critical feedback that the original sponsoring partner will say, wait a minute, maybe I don't want to do this. And so they'll actually get permission to make the investment. But then they'll turn around and say, you know what, I, I changed my mind. Um, and, and I've decided I don't want to move forward here. Now, it sounds like you guys are quantitative. Is there some sort of formula for evaluating or measuring or determine how much capital a partner can employ, kind of deploy? There's not a formula, but there's a, we, we sort of, because we're, we've, you know, when I joined Bessemer, we were about 20 some odd employees. Now the firm has about 150 employees, about a third of whom are investment professionals. And so in order to manage the company, which is Bessemer Venture Partners, we've had to invest in infrastructure and processes and systems and committees. And so we have no CEO, we have no managing partner. Um, it's, a, it's a group of equals, but we all can't be involved in everything that would break down pretty quickly. It's like having an orchestra with no conductor, but we don't, none of us want to work for somebody else. Um, and so people very rarely leave um, voluntarily because it's a great place. You don't really have a boss, but in order to run that kind of an organization, you need processes and systems. And so we do it through committees. So there's a committee. Um, I'm not on the committee. I actually don't remember who's on the committee, which also um, shows you how, how sort of flexible and freewheeling it is to some extent. But there's a committee that ultimately sets the capital budget per partner and says, here's the ceiling of how much capital you can invest. Now, you can appeal for more. And if you're doing really well, you'll get more. You can also team up with others to share responsibility on certain uh, investments. Mm. But that's basically how it works. Interesting. Now, you, you mentioned that you guys are really good at growing and developing talent, young talent. Any wisdom, insights in there for other VC firms, but also more broadly for anyone listening who's training people up? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I think that the main, there's, there's a few things. One is you have to attract really talented people in the first place. If you can get really talented people in the door, it's much easier um, to grow new partners. And so then the question you ask yourself is, well, what are the preconditions to get the most talented people that want to come work someplace? And the answer, I think, is first and foremost, like the potential for them to be in charge one day. And so if you're going to work someplace and you see there's a CEO, particularly a CEO whose name is on the door of the company, like they're always going to be the boss. You are always working for the man or the woman, as it may be. In venture capital these days, it's mostly the man, but hopefully over time, it'll also be the woman. Um, but, but most really talented, really ambitious people don't want to work for someone else. And so the first thing you have to demonstrate is actually, if you come here and learn and succeed and grow, you can be the man or the woman. You, you can be a true co-equal owner stakeholder at the table. And in order to make that believable, you have to show examples of other people who've done it. And so, you know, I view myself as an example. I joined Bessemer at age 20 something, in my middle to late 20s in 2001. I had no ownership of the firm. I had no venture capital experience. I had no carry in any of the investments that I made or other people made. Uh, I was an associate trying to learn the business. And now, 21 years later, even though I didn't start the firm, um, I, I wasn't there. It, it existed for 80 years, even before I joined. Now, I'm in the, the ownership and management group of partners. And so, and I'm not the only one. Um, uh, you know, my colleague Byron Dieter joined in that fashion and grew up. My colleague Brian Feinstein joined in that fashion and grew up to be one of the partners and on and on and on down the list. And so as a prospective analyst or an associate, when you see that the firm doesn't just say you have a chance to become a true co-equal, but there are in fact 17 of the 22 partners all started in the same way you are and grew up in that fashion, you believe it. And they say, okay, um, this is interesting. I don't have to just learn the business there and then 
find the courage to go start my own thing somewhere else. And that's how I get to this top of the organization. I can actually grow all the way through the organization. That's hugely empowering and motivating to the right kind of person. Um, and so that's one thing we do. The other thing we do, which I think is really interesting and unique, is we allow our young professionals to invest their own money in the investments we make. And so um, my dad used to tell me growing up that, you know, practice makes perfect. And if you want to get good at anything, you have to practice it and practice it and practice it. The problem in the venture business or any investment business, really, if you're a young professional, is that you spend a lot of time recommending what you would do, but not actually deciding because you aren't the decision maker. There's typically a partner or a committee that's going to make the decisions. And so if you really want to get good at something, if you ultimately want to be good at making a decision, recommending is sort of indirect practice. It's kind of like, you know, if you wanted to get good at, at three-point shooting in basketball, but you took lots of foul shots, you'd probably get better at three-point shooting, but you get a lot better, a lot faster if you actually just took three-point shots over and over again, to my practice makes perfect analogy. And so at Bessemer, by, by allowing each of our individual professionals to invest their own money in each investment we make, over the course of the year, if the firm makes 40 investments, those young professionals are making 40 actual decisions with their own checkbook out of their own bank account on how much money they're going to invest. And, and believe you me, we all tend to remember loving the really great deals in hindsight. And we all tend to remember not liking the ones that didn't work out that much. But when you have a record that you have to look at yourself of what you wrote in terms of a check to invest in, in, in a certain deal, you can't remember incorrectly anymore. And it's like, well, if I really love that thing, why did I write such a small check or no check at all? And if I really didn't think that was a good deal, why did I write a big check? And so we have all these systems to hold ourselves to account for what we really thought. It's mostly practice doing the job. And even though making a decision, which you know, for a young analyst might be about whether they're going to invest $300 or $500 in a given deal, whereas a, a seasoned partner might be making the same decision where it could be $300,000 or $500,000. The fact is when you're investing your own money, you tend to learn lessons much faster than when you're simply making a recommendation about what to do with somebody else's money. It makes a big difference. That's a really interesting dynamic you've set up. Um, why, have, uh, why should founders take Bessemer's money? This is the underhand pitch. Yeah, I mean, it... it it, it depends, and there isn't really one Bessemer. Um, the other thing that's really fun and, uh, and rewarding for me is that at Bessemer, we accommodate almost any style. You know, we have sort of a no, a no jerks or no assholes policy. Um, but other than that, you can be super extroverted. You can be super introverted. You can be really um, intellectually, all of us are intellectually curious, but you can be really um, bottoms up and, and kind of plot where you want to invest and how, or you can be very reactive. You know, there's lots of ways of doing it. We accommodate all these styles. Um, and so for an entrepreneur, if you want and are compatible with a given style, you'll probably find that among the various partners at Bessemer. Um, but um, we don't try to force a particular approach. It's not, it's not homogenous in any way. Um, and, and part of that is because we've been geographically distributed for such a long period of time. We're not all in one office you know, drinking the same flavor coffee and, and using the same language over and over again. We do have some common beliefs and tenets that we, and values that we hold really dearly, but we then accommodate a really broad range of styles. So, so one thing is you're, you're going to get something that's truly custom tailored to you um, as an entrepreneur. And, and if, if you find your match, you're, you'll, you'll really enjoy it. If you don't, you don't. That's okay too. Um, the second thing though, is that we, we tend to be really roadmap oriented. We talk about this a lot internally. 
And so we tend not to be all that reactive to what's happening in the market, but rather we do what we even think of as a bit of an ivory tower exercise, where we'll spend six or nine or even 18 months just researching an area, trying to develop a series of hypotheses. And then we often will proactively reach out to companies in the areas where, that we're interested in, as opposed to waiting to get inbound deal flow and people knocking on our door. And, we'll, and, and even when we do get referrals and inbound flow, we'll have already articulated all the reasons why we like or don't like a given area. And we'll talk about that with an entrepreneur and bring real expertise to the table. And, and when they suddenly realize we know a lot about their business and their industry, because we researched it for weeks or months in advance, they tend to really like that. And so we, we, and then lastly, I'll say is we're not, we're not operators. Some of us are, but most of us are career investors. And um, in my mind, particularly when you're pairing up with a venture capital firm, you end up essentially selling a part of your business, typically a, a minority part of your business for some capital, but you're also um, selling some influence. And so you're bringing on a partner and you're agreeing to work with that partner in partnership. Uh, oftentimes that manifests itself in the form of a board seat, for example. And, um, and so you're in some sense selling. It's, it's not really this crass in reality, but, but if you boil it down, you're sort of selling a board seat to somebody. And my argument is if you're going to do that, you want to do that to someone who's going to compliment you, not supplement you. And so I, I'm never going to sit and tell an entrepreneur, oh, oh when I was in your shoes, and I had to make this decision. I had to deal with this HR issue or deal with the strategy issue. This is what I, this is what I did. And this, therefore, this is what you should do. I don't say that because I don't know that. I, I've never sat in the entrepreneur's seat or wore his or her shoes. But what I do say is, here's what I've seen other people do. And more importantly, let me connect you to three CEOs that had to make that exact decision. And then you can see the three flavors of how to do it. And you can pick what's right for you. Um, and, and having someone who's more neutral or Switzerland give you that advice as opposed to someone who says, this is how I did it. And therefore, if you, the entrepreneur, decide to do it a different way, you're sort of challenging and ignoring the advice that you're getting from one of your investors and someone to whom you effectively sold a board seat feels really uncomfortable. And so I think the other thing that I like to tell founders is you want to get operational help and mentors and guides, but you want to get them on your terms, not on someone else's terms. And by working with folks who are purely investors, who just want what's in the company's best interest, don't have a bee in their bonnet about how to build your company, because it's your company, not theirs, it will serve you well. So those are sort of a few of the examples. I can go into to many more, but uh, but that's what makes Bessemer distinct. Maybe I'll say one last thing, which is, I mentioned this earlier, we really empower the individual partners of Bessemer to make decisions. And so when you're, as an entrepreneur, working with a partner at Bessemer, you can talk to them and understand what Bessemer thinks, because it's what that partner thinks. You don't need to wait for them to go back to headquarters and ask the person whose, whose name is on the door of the company to say, well, this is what I think, but is that okay with you? And, and then, you know, go back or have to wait until you can go back and, um, and find out what the real answer is from Bessemer, because you had to wait to get to the, you know, your, your partner's boss or the, the true decision maker. And that's refreshing. It makes for really quick, efficient dialogue and real partnership as opposed to thinking that you're dealing with a sort of a sales agent who has to go back to the, the CEO and find out what the, the true answer is. Jeremy, you've been in this space for a long time. I mean, 21 years alone at Bessemer. How did you get here? What was the path for, for you from childhood onward? You know, is it, is it a straight line in the rearview mirror? Was it a... <laughs> from childhood, like? now I, yeah. I feel like I have to lie down on a couch to answer this question. Um, the, so... 
I guess I, I was always super into tech. Um, and, you know, I, I laugh because we, we hire analysts out of college every year. And um, I think in at many of the top schools where we recruit something like 350 or 400 students these days in a typical college class are computer science majors. Um, when I, I graduated from Duke in 1995, and there were 12 computer science majors in my entire class. 11 of them were men and one was a woman and most of them were really strange, present company included. Um, it just wasn't a thing. Um, and, uh, but uh, I ended up after college going to uh, join McKinsey where I was charmed by the extremely articulate people with lots of fancy foreign accents. Um, and then after that, I, I, I tried my hand for two years doing private equity investing, which was then called leverage buyouts. Um, and, and that was interesting for two years. I learned a lot about money and finance, but, uh, but it was unappealing to me on, on a few dimensions. So then I tried my hand at a software startup and I did that for two years and realized how hard it is to actually build a company. I wanted to go back and be an investor again. And then Bessemer was my fourth job for two years, at which point my father, who's a doctor, thought something was very wrong with me because I couldn't hold a job down for more than two years. And he decided <laughs> at like age 19 what he was going to do for the next 60 years of his life. And so um, now the, my fourth two-year job stuck. Um, I really enjoyed it and, and I was pretty good at it. I was also in the right place at the right time. And I've been there for, for 21 years now. Um, but my, my advice, anytime anyone asks me, and I get lots of 20-somethings reaching out about like, how do I get into venture capital? What should I do? My advice that I give to almost any young person is try the most interesting job you can get for two years. And if you love it, keep doing it. And if you like it, but don't love it, try something else and then try something else. And when you're early in your career, the risk and the friction cost of moving from one job to the other is pretty low. And you can find what you really, really love. Like there were a lot of things I liked about my first few jobs, but I didn't love any of them. Um, and if I hadn't had the courage to keep trying something new, which is probably was painful, you have to start over each time. I think in my third job, I was making less money than I made in my first job. Um, but uh, but I, I, I thought the long game, that wouldn't really matter. What matters is finding something you really love. And if you find something you really love to do, chances are you'll be successful at it. And chances are you'll be richly rewarded for doing it because you're more likely to be good at something that you like doing. Successful indeed. Uh, you've been on the Forbes Midas list. Uh, you've been involved with Shopify, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and many other incredible companies. When you look back at your, your evolution as an investor, what has been your superpower when it comes to investing? What has served you well? Um, you know, th there isn't really one big thing. Um, I think there's lots of little things that matter. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. It'd be easy if there were sort of one thing. Um, you know, one thing is like, I don't spend a whole lot of time with other venture capitalists. Um, I think that's mostly a waste of time. Everyone wants to like, what are you working on? What's interesting? Um, like, and if you're doing what everyone else is doing, or you're influenced by what everyone else is thinking, you'll never find compelling and contrarian ideas. And that's where all the money is made in venture capital. Um, when you have the right idea, and it's something other people don't necessarily believe in. Um, it also gets to this idea, a lot of people, particularly early in their career, um, covet the safety of feeling like you're in a pack with others and you're not veering too far off the mainstream because, you know, if you're wrong, at least everyone else is wrong and how bad can it be? But the flip side is it's hard to be really, really right when everyone else thinks the same thing, particularly because the venture industry is competitive. And you, if you have to pay a price to get into a deal and make an investment that 10 other people want to make, 
um, chances are you're paying a much higher price when you're trying to invest in an area that hundreds of other people like. But if you're off a little bit on your own in an area that isn't all that crowded, the ability to make a really great investment at a really reasonable entry valuation is, is much higher. And so um, I like to say the more alone you feel in venture capital, the more likely you are really onto something that could be big. Maybe the last thing I'll say is just you have to be really patient. Um, and so in 21 years doing this, I've had what I think are three roadmap ideas that were really compelling and at least somewhat contrarian at the time. So that's like one good idea every seven years. And as I describe this to entrepreneurs, I'll often say, if someone said to you, you have to start a company this month, pick the best company idea you can come up with to start this month, chances are you're going to do much less well than if you could take the next three years to pick the best company idea you could come up with. Because like really good ideas, they don't come along all the time. They come along at random moments when you're in the shower or on the toilet or reading a newspaper. Um, and, and what's key is to be patient and wait for the really compelling idea that you're, you can build conviction in and isn't well understood by everybody. And if it takes three months for that to happen, great. If it takes three years, that's okay too. If it takes six years, that's okay. But what matters is once you, when you do find it, you act aggressively and swiftly to take advantage of it um, because they don't come along that often, but you've got to patiently wait until the next one does arrive. Do you know when you have that idea? Is it like your heart's pounding and it's the moment of clarity or is there a lot of self-doubt in that moment? No, there's enormous self-doubt because you get people looking at you like you're crazy. I mean, uh, as an example, in 2010, we invested in this company called MindBody. It was um, software as a service for yoga studios. And, and literally, even within our partnership, people were highly skeptical about this opportunity because the simple math was, well, there are 50,000 yoga studios in America. If you got every single one of them to sign up and pay the $100 monthly subscription fee, that would be $5 million a month of revenue. That's $60 million a year. Why are you bothering? to invest in a company that's only ever going to be able to create $60 million a year in revenue. Now, the, the thesis was that if you invested in a horizontal SaaS company like Salesforce, you can maybe get to 20% market share, which if the market's big enough, is a great business. But if you invest in a very specific software tailored for an industry, you can get to 80% market share. And then not only do you get the revenues associated with your software, but you can essentially become a distribution channel to that entire industry and monetize that distribution channel by layering on other products and services to sell to the same customers. And that's in fact what happened with my money. Eventually they got into the payments business. And when they started to process all the payments for all the yoga studios, their revenue, I think roughly tripled that you know, in terms of what they're getting from each, each individual uh, yoga studio. And then they realized that there are other businesses that are really similar to yoga studios that didn't take a whole lot of change to make this all for work, like a Pilates studio or a CrossFit studio or a gym. And eventually got all the way to, hair salons and chiropractors with the same basic software. And so at the beginning, when we started investing in vertical software companies, it was really hard. People thought we were, we were half nuts doing it. Um, eventually, when you're vindicated, it turns out that you're right. Everyone wants to make those same investments, which not only makes you feel good about making a good choice you know, several months or years before, but it also means lots of capital becomes available to your portfolio companies at relatively attractive for the company's um, rates. Um, which helps further accelerate or drive more growth because access to capital can sometimes be a limiting factor. So to answer your question, it's, it's really scary when you're trying to do something new and different that other people aren't doing because you just wonder, like, am I the only idiot 
who am I the only person with the insight? And, and sometimes there's a very fine line between a unique insight and a truly idiotic move. And only with the benefit of some hindsight do you know, you know, which is which. So we spend a lot of time and we're pretty patient to try to build conviction because doing something that's different is really hard. It's, it's never feels good at the time. It only feels good after the fact. What are you focusing on now to the extent it's not an issue to share? Yeah. Uh, so, um, I'll give you the, the, the medium uh, length answer to that question because it's hard to explain really quickly. But the context is that I made a lot of consumer investments based on the thesis that you could get significant free distribution of a consumer app from maybe 2004 through 2011 or 12. And you know, you mentioned some of the companies we invested in, but you know, Yelp was amongst them. And Yelp leveraged really smart search engine optimization to get free distribution. And LinkedIn leveraged essentially email spam. There was a day um, when you could send an email, you could, as an app maker, you could convince users to send an email to 80 of their friends and tell them to try the service too. Uh, those days are no longer. You can't get anyone to send an email to 80 of their friends anymore, unless you trick them, um, which is not a very good way of building a trusted uh, relationship with your users. Um, uh, you could at one point get access to lots of consumers through the Facebook news feed. Facebook more or less cut that off. If they see uh, an app leveraging their news feed to get distribution, they'll just eliminate it from the news feed algorithmically. And so from 04 to, or maybe even predating 04, but I started doing it in 04 to 2011 or 12, you could get lots of free distribution until the, what I call the internet oligopolists, basically Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple. They sort of cut off free distribution. There were no techniques left. And so I, I really toned down my consumer investing starting around 2013 because uh, I was somewhat uneasy with pure spend money to acquire customers through marketing acquisition technique. And I didn't see any new free acquisition techniques existing anymore. And it was disappointing to me because consumer investing is a ton of fun and the potential to build something really special and like a household name really only exists in consumer investing. It's hard to do that through business software or other domains of technology. Um, but what I've noticed uh, more recently is I think a couple of really interesting Distribution techniques have re-emerged that are outside the control of the Google, Facebooks, and Amazons and Apples of the world. And they generally rely on, you know, this category of human being, who I call superhumans, but some people call them influencers or creators. And uh, and they tend to have significant followings of their own. And and Google and Apple, they, they can't stop them. They, there's nothing they can do about it. And so uh, if you can build a service or a utility that's really valued by those superhumans, you can get them to essentially port or, or uh, port their users, their followers over to your internet service. Um, now you need to offer them something in exchange, but it's really powerful and it doesn't necessarily take money or marketing dollars to do it. And so there's a bunch of businesses that we're starting to see that are leveraging this. Maybe most famously is Discord. We're very small investors in Discord. I wish we were larger investors, but clearly it's a business that is, has managed to take advantage of this idea um, where Discord is a massive consumer property, but it doesn't spend any money acquiring consumers. It's just built a really compelling service for these superhumans to introduce to their followings and their consumers. So you're talking about some deals that you know were quite a while ago, and I think a lot of these lessons still apply. But the VC game has changed a ton. How have you seen the industry evolve in the last handful of years? Um, mostly, it's just it's it's uh, intensely more competitive and more crowded. And so, I think there's probably 
three or four sources of capital today for every one source there was um, even 10, let alone 20 years ago. And each of those sources now has two or three or four times as much money as they did uh, a decade or two ago. Um, but uh, I actually think that the, um, the truth is the areas that are interesting are the ones that are not crowded. And so if you're, if you're working in the mainstream where everybody wants to invest, you'll feel that competitive tension and those pressures pretty intensely. But if you find stuff that's, as I said before, a little bit contrarian, um, what, what some would call on the fringe of, of mainstream VC, um, it will feel no more crowded than it was 10 or 20 years ago. It'll feel just as lonely. And so it's another reason why it's sort of the lonely feeling in VC is probably a good feeling. Um, you got to figure out why it's lonely. Are you the only idiot is the, certainly the question to ask. But if you can find those less exciting to the mainstream areas, um, the business still works. Um, if you're having to compete uh, against everybody else, then, then you're essentially in the beauty contest business. And, um, and I hate beauty contests. They are not fun. Um, getting all dressed up and gussied up uh, to, 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 to try to appear like a, a more attractive candidate than, than all the others, is uh, that is extremely tiring to me. To me, what's energizing about the business is learning about something new, digging into a new idea, rolling up on sleeves and like trying to really understand the dynamics in a new business or a business model with an entrepreneur. That's fun. But, uh, but, but you know, getting dressed up for the dance, that, that's, that's for the birds. So capital supplies up, but valuations have also been up for a bit. Um, even the nomenclature used for rounds, what a Series A was two, three years ago, does not equ equate to what a Series A is today. How has all that shifted and what's the impact of it? Well, there's, there's a sort of, there's an, it's, it's an okay narrative and there's a, it's a problem narrative. So I'll, I'll do the it's a problem narrative first. The it's a problem narrative is if you're having to invest three times as much money to create a company that you needed to invest 10 or 15 years ago, then by definition, the returns are going to be, you know, one third as attractive. Um, and frankly, it's not all great for entrepreneurs either because it means the pressure of all the incremental liquidation preferences and dilution from the extra capital um, can be really weighty and it makes the whole thing less fun. So that's that's the sort of it's a problem narrative. So much more capital, bigger rounds, bigger everything, just creates a higher bar that's tougher to jump over. The sort of it's okay narrative says, well, no, because if you look back at, in, in if you look prospectively in 2007 or 2008, at the time there were a handful of venture-backed companies that had ever made it to be uh, a $5 billion enterprise value. Um, and so it made sense that you needed to keep a Series A financing at 3 or $4 million because the chance of creating a company worth $5 million was so outlandishly remote, you'd never get there. Whereas if you fast forward 15 years, there are dozens of companies um, that were created in the last 10 years that are worth well more than 5 billion. In fact, there's a whole bunch of them that are worth more than 50 billion, which was nearly unheard of just 15 years before. And so the sort of it's going to be okay scenario is like, sure, it makes sense that a series A went from 3 million to 10 million or 12 million because the size of the outcomes has increased so dramatically, it more than justifies the, the extra capital you need or can get access to at the early stages. So, you know, the, the question is like, which of these is true? I, I think to some extent, I, I'm certainly in the it's going to be okay scenario overall. I think there's a bit of an element of truth in both. So I think the outcomes are bigger, but I also think if you just look back at the last five years, 
the outcomes were somewhat inflated from reality. I don't think they're quite as big as people got used to thinking they were at the end of 2021, but they're definitely a lot bigger than they were you know, back in 2005. And so it probably doesn't, it, it probably makes sense for the size of a Series A to have gone from 3 million to say 10, but it probably doesn't make sense for a Series A to have gone from 3 million to 30. And so the, the truth is somewhere in between. So how does the recent drop in tech valuations in the public market impact all of this? Because right, there's been a there's been a bit of a correction or a shift just recently. No, no. So I feel like we saw this same movie almost to a T in 2009. And so in two, and that was really the last time it happened. It was 13 years ago. And that's long enough ago that almost nobody that plays in the venture industry today was even in the venture industry 13 years ago. So I feel like um, I don't feel that old, but, but on this dimension, I do. And so in 2009, what happened was the public market prices fell dramatically. And, uh, and if you're in, if you're a private company, if you didn't need to raise money, you, you wouldn't because you would just sit and hope that, yeah, this is a short term downward blip. And within a few months, prices will be back to where they used to be in the public markets. And since the public markets essentially dictate, um, indirectly what an investor should be willing to pay to invest in a private company, because they're ultimately mapping to an exit in the public markets or to an acquisition by a public company, these things are all correlated. But if, if you don't want to accept that the public market prices just dropped by 40%, and therefore the private market prices also dropped by 40%, as an entrepreneur, you simply don't raise any money. And you can get away with that for a while. And so in 2009, we saw only the desperate entrepreneurs raise money in that shortly after that, that downward drop because they had to. But most entrepreneurs didn't have to, and so they, they dragged it as long as they could. Eventually, two things happened. One is, as time wears on, if the public market prices don't pop back up, which I don't expect they will, people start to get accustomed to the fact that this is the reality. And so, yeah, you can wait another two or three months and see if anything changes, but it's been a year, probably it's not going to change. And then the second thing that happens is that those private companies that ultimately want to keep growing, they simply start to exhaust the capital they had on the balance sheet when the market fell. So they have to go back into the market and raise money. And so I think the best, the two best vintages for investments in the past 30 years at Best Venture Partners were 2010 and 2011. It wasn't 2009. In 2009, I'd argue the market locked up a little bit because no one wanted to transact at the new lower prices. But by 2010, it kind of was accepted. And then people came back in the market and said, okay, I, I wish it were still 2007 and I could raise money, but it's not. So I have to deal with today's prices. And so I anticipate that 2023 will be a phenomenal year for venture capital and that we'll I, th I think we'll see a slightly slower pace this year than we have for a while because if you're an entrepreneur why would you raise money now if you think maybe the market will pop back up yeah i think for the growth companies this shift is a little disconcerting what i'm trying to figure out is how someone navigates this if they believe the valuations aren't going to pop back up so either you try to grow into the valuation right or you have all these people on staff who you know they're underwater on their options right and you have a if you're if you're writing that next check jeremy like you're coming into a company where you don't know who's going to be running it and then the senior leadership yeah well so you know on the one hand it, it's, it's a really sharp double-edged sword so i applaud the approach that that fiji took at instacart where she and the company just said look let's not pretend that you know we're we're still worth what we might have been worth four months ago and let's adjust the strike price that we issue employee options and equity to <clears throat> accommodate the new reality. That's really hard to do 
um, particularly if you think you're going to need to raise more money. And so the trap that a lot of companies get into is they have two choices. Um, well, they have three choices. One is just don't raise any more money, but eventually right. most companies can't sustain that choice. So then when you get to the, okay, we're going to raise more money, you have two choices. The first choice is to just accept the reality and take whatever the current market valuation really should be for your company to raise what I call clean equity. And that is equity with all, without all sorts of hooks and guarantees and preferences and, and sort of special return features, um, which is, which by the way, none of that stuff, gingerbread is my short term name for my, my short term nickname for that. None of that stuff, none of that gingerbread existed in the market for the past 10 years because things kept going up. And so investors got really clean deals, what I call straight preferred, you either get your money back or you get your percentage of the company that you acquired, but not both. Um, so, so one approach companies have is to, to go for gingerbread free terms and accept just lower prices, which might mean a flat round or even a slight down round compared to where you were before, given that the market has changed. Um, the hard thing about that is it's an admission that your company isn't worth what it was. You have to have this reckoning with all of your employees and executives about what their stock options and equity grants are worth. And you might even have anti-dilution triggers in yeah. your late financings that will come into play to make your last financing more expensive than you thought it was. And that's all really painful stuff to deal with. I'd argue you should swallow and accept it and deal with it. Um, once and upfront in a clean way, because while well, as painful as it is, the alternative might be worse. And the alternative is basically sustaining the fantasy or fallacy of the quote unquote high valuation that is no longer true and doing it by giving your new investors a whole bunch of special rights and privileges that they will happily accept in exchange for paying a higher valuation than they think is really appropriate. So a classic example is promising the new investor that they'll get a guaranteed two times their money in any outcome, if they're willing to pay a higher valuation than they otherwise would. And many investors will, will take that. And so what you can do is you can announce to everybody, great news, we're still worth this high price, but it's not really true. And it's, it's not that the headline will sound great and might, might, might be true, but, but when you get into the details, it isn't. And eventually, executives and employees will learn the truth and they'll feel sort of misled and misguided and maybe even a bit manipulated because by maintaining the same high price per share, you can avoid the reckoning and, uh, and you know, the, the, the re-equitization and the fixing of all those employee packages because you're sort of in denial. You can get away with it for a while. If it, these, these, these things eventually tend to come home to roost and create much bigger problems. And so, uh, but nonetheless, like if, you, if you're sure it's the last time you're ever going to need to raise money, you can maybe get away with it. Um, but oftentimes when companies think it's their last time really to raise money, it ends up not being. Um, and so it is, it's a dangerous game to play. I think we'll see it happen a lot because um, most people don't want to do the reckoning and the true sort of truly true cleanup job that's required to fix things. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's going to be messy. So that's the founder side. What about for VCs? What's your advice for investors out there who are staring at the new market dynamic? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, there's no right answer. I think you, you can do well as an investor either way. My personal preference is clean stuff up. Um, and that, you know, the more, the more instances in which you invest with fancy terms and crazy structure to justify a higher price, it just means that you're misaligned with the entrepreneurs and the employees because there's a whole bunch of scenarios in which you as the investor will make money when they don't. And you just don't want that because when you're having an honest conversation in the boardroom about what's the right strategic answer for the company, Half the people are saying one thing because they're motivated by their pocketbook, and the other half of the people are saying something else 
because they're motivated by their pocketbook. And it just so happens that they have different incentives. And so you can no longer have an honest, trusted partnership with somebody anymore because you're driving toward different outcomes with, for, 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 for good reasons that you created. Whereas if you address these mispricings head on and clean things up and ensure that there's good alignment between what the entrepreneur wants and what the investor wants, you just don't have this sort of weird subterfuge and, and sort of, you know, unsaid hidden agendas, which great, I think, for very messy governance and also mostly just for lousy partnerships. Okay, but that's, that's for this particular type of deal framework. I mean, more broadly, VCs are walking in now to, let's say the market slows down. You know, LP books are way overweighted VC as the NAV drops and a bunch of other stuff. If we hit kind of a normal recessionary cycle, what are the tricks of the trade for VCs to navigate those waters? On, on, on which dimension? Do you mean in dealing with entrepreneurs or in dealing with limited partners or a little bit of both? Limited partners, how they're deploying capital, more management of the firm. Um, I mean, I think that, so you mentioned this idea that um, limited partners, VC exposure will look really high because the rest of their portfolio is now down in value, but not their venture capital portfolio. And I just think that's a fallacy. Like the reality is if all your equities are down except your private equities, then you're probably fooling yourself and your private equities are down too. Um, and that your total portfolio may have shrunk, which may mean you want you have less total capital to invest. But I think the idea that you should now stop investing in venture capital cut it back meaningfully because it represents a higher percentage of your total assets. It just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make sense that one equity, which happens to be quoted every day, went down in value, but the other one, which isn't, didn't go down in value. The truth is that they're highly correlated. And if you want to be in the asset class, you've got to be in it for the long term. So I think the most important thing to do, frankly, is when you're talking to prospective limited partners, screen for the ones that are really long-term thinkers, not the ones who are trying to maximize their returns in every quarter, because it's impossible to do in an asset class like venture that's so illiquid and so long-term oriented. And if you're aligned with LPs that are also thinking about the long-term with you, it will work itself out because they'll realize, yeah, this is, this is a... a it's a, it's a kind of investing that um, has its ups and downs, but in the long run performs really well, but you've got to stick with it in, for the long run in order to achieve those long run results. And uh, that said, if, you, if, you're, if you're dealt the hand of, of LPs who aren't willing to take that long-term approach, um, you're stuck. There's not much you can do about it. Um, but it, it does suggest you got to be really careful about who you get into you know, as, as business partners in exactly the same way that an entrepreneur has to be really thoughtful about who he or she gets into business with as an investing partner. So in, in that sense, the venture capitalist is facing the same uh, dilemma or challenge that the entrepreneur is facing. As I think about uh, entrepreneurs, I, I like this mode a lot better. Um, you know, on the one hand, in 2017, if with hindsight, you can invest in 2017, it's easy because everything just kept going up for the next four years. It almost didn't matter what you did or how much work you did. Every choice you made was probably a good choice. Um, the flip side is, we didn't really get to know entrepreneurs nearly as deeply as we could have because processes were rushed, timelines were short. Um, I think I look forward to an extension of the timelines where you don't find out about a company and have to make a decision to invest in a week. Um, in my mind, uh, making an investment is, is not that different from, from getting married. Like You're in a partnership, you'll, you'll make compromises, you won't always get what you want, but you're in it together. Um, and divorce is really expensive <laughs> and really painful. Um, and so I'd rather be able to take a couple months to get to know somebody who, who I'm going to be in a long-term partnership with that's going to last. You know, I was on the board for 14 years. 
Um, I've been on the board of Shopify for 11 years. Like these things go on for a long period of time. Um, this is not like a three month thing that you're living with. This is a long term relationship. And if you think you can make a decision as an investor or an entrepreneur in who you want to be in business with in a matter of a week or two, I think you're fooling yourself. And sometimes it'll work out, much like I do know some people who, who married their you know, high school sweetheart, um, and it, it can work out. But if you can actually get to know somebody over a longer period of time and really understand how they'll act and react in good scenarios and bad scenarios and what their values are, you're much more likely to have a productive partnership. So that part I love. Um, not only do we get to do more homework to build higher conviction and certainty in how we want to invest, but we also just get to know people much better. And it's a really important part of the business. Jeremy, we're going to end with that. That was terrific. Thanks for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really love interviewing other VCs on this pod. I feel like I'm learning a ton about how they think about the industry, how they operate their firms. So big thanks to Jeremy for being on. All right. If you don't mind helping us out, push those buttons. Good reviews, likes, all that stuff. And you can find us, uh, if you're looking for more of our content, on Twitter at MPD. And you can find a good bit of our content actually on our website. We don't talk about that often, but on interplay.vc, you can find a lot of news about portfolio companies. We have blog content um, and obviously the pod. Thanks for listening.